Hello and welcome. I'm Trepid Man, and you're listening to the 40 Code College Podcast, a podcast about advancing your limited game, whether you're a first-time drafter or a trophy master. So today we have a very, very special episode headed your way. I have a fantastic guest with me today. I'm going to introduce him in just a second here. Um, but before we get to that, just a few kind of housekeeping notes. So the first is that we are, you know, in, in the mid-season of Freckshell, we would be one right now, but there's actually a ton of interesting formats coming up. Um, so right now we have the Alchemy Drafts that just started on Arena. They're running for about a week, week and a half, all the way until March 10th, uh, at which point Strixhaven Premier Drafts are coming online. So that's going to be kind of cool. And at the end of March, there's going to be Shadows Over Innistrad Remaster. They're mixing some of that together with Eldritch Moon. Um, one of my favorite formats, I've got uh, a key iconic card, piece of the puzzle, uh, one that's the giant Grand Prix blow-up cardboard uh, cards behind me. Obviously, you can't see it because you're listening. <laughs> um, but a fun set. I'm looking forward to seeing what they include in that remastered version. Um, also, before we get into things here, a quick word on the Patreon. So this show, it is listener-supported via the Patreon. I do want to thank all the patrons who are already supporting the show. I really appreciate your support. Uh, the resources here, this podcast, the website, 40cardcollege.com, those are always going to be free to you. Um, all the links to everything in terms of that, the free Discord, uh, the YouTube link, um, you know, Twitter, all that kind of stuff is going to be in the episode show notes. Now, if you have found value here and you do want to give back, get access to some bonus perks, uh, you can check out the Patreon, find a tier that's right for you at patreon.com slash 40cardcollege, things like draft log review, uh, coaching sessions at the highest tier, Shoutouts on the podcast, uh, group classes, just a wide range of things as a way to give back, but also so that you can get some of those extra bonus perks to help level up your game. Now, as I was saying, we do have a fantastic guest with us this week. We have none other than the Pasta Pirate, aka Pasta. Uh, so Pasta, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Again, uh, Neil, thank you so much for having me on the show. I'm huge fan of uh, you and your content. So yeah, this is this is a uh... Such a treat. Absolutely. Now, um, Pasta, for folks that don't know much about your background uh, as it relates to magic or who you are, you know, you're an excellent streamer, but folks might maybe haven't had the opportunity to check out your excellent channel, your Twitter content, all that kind of stuff. Can you kind of let us know a little bit about you as a magic player and sort of like where your passions lie in terms of you know, limited things that you like about it, etc. Absolutely, yeah. Um, in uh, 2017, uh, I was a late bloomer, I guess. My uh, buddies just taught me um, magic with the cards that they had, just kitchen table, very casual. And I got into arena a little bit after that, and and started streaming shortly after. But for quite a while, I was just playing constructed. I guess it was probably around M21 uh, on arena, and then. I just found myself stagnating, I guess, as a magic player, you know, I was just making the same decks and, you know, falling, you know, just kind of doing the same thing. And, uh, I wanted more and, um, decided to try playing limited. And I guess that was around, uh, Innistrad Midnight Hunt was my first, uh, set that I was like, okay, I'm just going to draft this set and see how it goes, see how I do. And, uh, <laughs> you know, how it goes, I was just hooked since. So yeah. So, um, Innistrad, Crimson Vow. Um, Neon Dynasty, Streets of New Capenna, you know, Alchemy, Horizons, Baldur's Gate. Uh, this basically uh, all the limited sets I've, I've gotten to play. And um, I, I do my best to, uh, you know, reach Mythic each month and uh, really strive to, uh, if I can, be like at 
number one match wins for 17 lands. So yeah, I always see you. I always see you near the tops of the leaderboards. I mean, you you're just a prolific player, just you know, always always playing, and I think uh, really embodying kind of what we're all about here. Uh, because I, I love your Twitter post specifically about like decks you draft because you always put little blurbs about like you know one two three four. This is what was great in this deck. You know. I learned this about X, Y, and Z card interactions, and it's just like kind of like a quick hits. And I think that's just a cool way to frame learning about limited, but then also specific formats. So definitely a great, uh, you're a great Twitter follower for that. It's just at the Posture Pirate, right? <laughs> yes, yes, just uh, at the Posture Pirate. It's a, it's a camel case. I just learned that uh, term. So it's like the underscore pasta underscore pirate. So, um, <laughs> but yeah, so um, I really. It's, uh, I think Twitter's just such a fantastic format for getting, for conveying information, especially with magic, because your, you know, limitation kind of makes you just be as concise as possible. So it's a, it's an absolutely great medium. So anyone who's not on Twitter, definitely check it out. I also enjoy the every, every once in a while, you know, rarely me, but sometimes like other content creators will like do like threads about like individual cards. So like, this is you know, the hazardous blast, you know, and they need to explain it in <laughs> right. 200 characters or less. And the next one, right. they're talking about why, you know, Flensing Raptor isn't as good as you expect. And it's always just kind of fun discourse in terms of that. So nice quick hits. One thing you mentioned uh, that I just thought of. So you've been playing limited since about Midnight Hunt. Has there yeah. been a favorite format for you? And if so, like, what did you particularly like about that format? Yeah, it's it's uh, funny you say. I think uh, the old adage is, uh, you know, your favorite format is the one you do best in. And uh, I, I feel like I was doing fairly well in Dominaria United. Uh, it felt like a, um, there was a lot of replayability. You know, it, it stayed very fresh for me. So, yeah, I'd, I'd probably have to say Dominaria United. But, um, yeah, Kamigawa uh, Neon Dynasty was probably close second. Nice. Yeah, yeah. Dominaria was really fun <laughs> yeah so once that returns as a flashback i'm sure i'm going to get a few more of those drafts in so what we're going to do here uh, is kind of a crack a draft now we're not going to do a whole draft but often we'll go about like four picks in that's kind of been what we're doing uh mid-set looking at hey what are the best commons uh on commons rare and then going from there but a lot of the commons at this point we know aren't really worth really picking you know pick one pack one so I have a simulated draft and we'll just kind of go through and stop once we feel like we've kind of found a lane. Um, and I, I think it's a fun way to frame it too, because sometimes you feel like you found a lane like, you know, by pick five and sometimes it's not until early pack two oftentimes. So what we'll do is I'll just kind of highlight the key cards that, you know, common, uncommon, and that way we can have those discussions. So you open up your pack here and the key commons that you're looking at not too many of them, honestly. There's Contagious Borak, you know, the 3 3 proliferator. And um, if you're looking at this pack pasta, I don't, I wouldn't even say anything else is notable, but do you see any other commons you would kind of want to highlight? Yeah, it's, you know, it's really interesting because uh, I think that uh, Gulping Scrap Trap, the uh, four and a black, four, four, ETB proliferate, uh, also on, on dies, proliferates. Uh, it's been a bit more of a role player, and <laughs> I heard uh, someone hyperbolically compare it to Maria's Outrider from Dominaria United. You know, five mana four four comes in, deals uh, can end up dealing four to face. It really is uh, pretty close, or not actually that close. Contagious Vorak is like in a league of its own, but yeah, I think I've been skewing. I think in some of my drafts towards blue and black. So 
Gulping Scrap Trap and actually Infectious Inquiry um, can uh, go a long way if you're, you know, you just care about a poison counter and refilling your hands. So yeah, I, I, that and uh, maybe uh, Sawblades Camp, but you know, those, none of these uh, I, other than Vorak are anything you'd want to first pick. So you're on the Vorak from the commons then, but let's see if the uncommons can change your mind. So our uncommons, um, we've got Transplant Theorist, which is the four mana two four that lets you loot anytime an artifact comes into play. Uh, and also you can pay two to put something on the bottom. Not that we ever really get to that stage of the game in uh, Frexio all be one. We've got the green blue signpost on common, Tainted Observer, the two three flying toxic one, and whenever anything else comes into play, you can uh, pay two to proliferate. And then we have Serum Snare, which is the bounce spell for one and a blue. But if you bounce something that costs three or less, you get to proliferate. So three blue cards, which is kind of interesting. Are any of those, you know, enticing you away from the Vorak pick one, pack one? Let's see. Of those three, I've drafted Serum Snare certainly the most. Um, you know, I, I think that in a format that is uh, driven by attacking and blocking, you know, especially backed up with tricks, Serum Snare goes a long way for being able to blow out your opponent's complete devotion or blazing crescendo. I think that the toughness on Transplant Theorist has actually been really annoying. Like if, you know, you've got a board full of like three ones and three twos and, you know, your opponent drops that, that it, it is a brick wall mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, can, can get you into gas. So I think Tainted Observer is a great card on paper. I'm just, you know, I haven't really gotten too deep into blue green, so can't really speak to it. So I'd be on uh, Serum Snare on honestly, just uh, if there's ever a tiebreaker, I go with the cheaper card. Now, you, would you rather take Serum Snare or Vorak? Because for me, I'd probably just be mm. on the Vorak because, like, I feel like Serum Snare is super flexible, but it's not like Raleigh powerful. Um, but it, and also, I don't really want to start blue. But you know, I'm curious if you've had different experiences and would rather start with that card. No, no, I 100 <laughs> percent on am on Vorak, uh, even even between those for sure. All right, we've got a Vorak, but we do have a, a rare. So. Unfortunately, our rare is a bit of a clunker. We've got Monument to Perfection, the two-mana artifact that goes and gets a bunch of lands. And if you do this crazy condition of getting all these different lands, it can turn into a 9-9, yada, yada, basically an F. Um, okay, so we have pick one, pack one, Contagious, Vorak. Um, so for pick, for pick two here, let's see if we're going to continue green or if we're going to go in a different direction. So here is our pack. Now... The simulated packs do have foils, like it's a paper draft, so we actually do have a foil mm. here, so hold on to that. I'll let Neat. you know in a second. So for commons, I'd say notable commons, we have Eye of Malkator, uh, we, the, uh, the artifact that turns into a 4-4. We've got, you know, Stinking Hivemaster, maybe, the 2 and a black 3-2, Toxic 1 that dies into a Might. We've got Flensing Raptor, the 2-2 uh, that flies and jumps things. That, that's kind of what I would be looking at, maybe, in terms of notable commons, but none of them are green. So to follow up with the Vorak, how are you feeling in this pack? Or are, are any of those different commons you're looking at? Yeah, um, it, it's interesting because, uh, you know, as we'll probably get into later in the episode, it's you can only get so far drafting good cards. It's really important to be looking at like your what your overall, um, you know, your deck's game plan, what the, the you know, pockets of synergy that you're going for. So I think a green black deck doesn't necessarily have to be toxic. It can just be like good cards. So yeah, I personally would probably be between Flinting Raptor or Hive Master. Haven't been particularly impressed by the Cackler unless you're you're very heavy oil already. 
I've seen, uh, I have uh, Malkator and Goldborn and Selm. You know, I, I could see those picks potentially too. But yeah, probably Flensing Raptor and Stinging Hive Master. They're bodies that come in with, um, you know, some upside. Yeah, so we could go with either of those. Could see that. Neither like perfect with the Vorak, but could be good. But we do have actually four uncommons because we have uh, the foil that I mentioned. So our uncommons, Necrogen Communion, the Aura that gives something toxic too. I've been reasonably scared of this card i would say i've never actually drafted it myself but my opponents have like you know played an evasive threat and slapped that on that like turn two or three and i'm just like wow i'm taking a lot of poison damage um sometimes i can get out of it and the card wasn't that scary but like sometimes i i have lost like a few games to that card just stealing wins we have oxidative finisher the seven mana seven five trample with affinity for equipment kind of a card that like you know it will wheel and sometimes you'll play it in red white and then we have Tamiyo's Immobilizer. This is one I've been really impressed by. The three and a blue artifact comes with the four oil counters and it can ice manipulator to tap um, artifacts or creatures, but you could run out of oil counters theoretically. But we also have the foil, Voidwing Hybrid, the blue-black signpost, um, the flying toxic one. Then you can proliferate to bring it back uh, to your hand if it's, if it's in your graveyard. So a lot of good uncommons here, uh, which is interesting after the Vorak pick? Yeah, certainly. Um, so recently I've, um, pro- I've I've played a few more decks that are two colors splashing, but I think for the most part, you're, you'll have more success if you if you stick to a streamlined two color mm-hmm. deck. So, uh, you know, the Voidwing Hybrid probably would be my pick, I, I guess, between that or the Immobilizer for Uncommons. Um, but just given that we already have Vorak, yeah, I mean, I, I think of this pack, Tamiyo's Immobilizer, is, it, it's got to be my, uh, my pick, I think. Um, but if, we, if our pack one had been different, I think Voidwing Hybrid uh, is, you know, is, is just a very compactly powerful card. Yeah, I think it's interesting because, like you said, in a different universe, like let's say our first pick was Anoint with Infliction. Right. Then, you know, you're not gaining that much of an advantage by taking the Immobilizer. Right. Unless, for for example, you not end up in black after taking the Anoint, and then you have the Immobilizer. But like in a blue-black deck specifically, you might want to take the Voidwing Hybrid because it's such a linchpin to that deck. Whereas yes. uh, taking the Vorak, it's not really synergistic with either, so you're committing in a particularly different lane, or you're just leaving your flexibility. I really like the Immobilizer pick here mm-hmm. because it kind of lets us maybe potentially be green-blue, even though that's not a very good lane, but it just gives us, hey, we have a good green card, we have a good blue card, and then we can move forward with that in mind and then you know see whichever one of those lanes is open and if green blue is open then those two cards actually work really well together so it's it's kind of interesting from that perspective yeah and uh can't overlook uh you know if you choose to decline your land with vorak theoretically proliferate another uh tap on the immobilizer all right so pick three let's see let's see if we can find a lane here and keep it going um again a foil so i'll get to that in a second which is kind of it's kind of spicy um, okay, so we, we're looking kind of for blue-green cards or Raleigh powerful cards to maybe pivot. So in blue and green, there's an experimental augury at common. Um, they anticipate that lets you proliferate. And then there's a branch blight stalker, which is the two mana three one, toxic two, but you really don't want to be toxic, I don't think, in blue-green, but it's a fine card, like if you want to ditch the immobilizer and just have a, a decent green card, but I'd pr- be pretty sad to third pick that. So there's nothing drawing me in the commons. 
There is a Terramorphic Expanse, but kind of hope to get it later. But there are some uncommons which are interesting for me. So there's a Scheming Aspirant, which I was mentioning that foil. So that's the uh, one in a black for the 1-3. When you proliferate, it drains two. And then there's the Vivisection Evangelist, the white-black uh, signpost. So the three white-black, 4-4 four, four Vigilance. But if, you're, if your opponent is corrupted, you can blow up a creature Planeswalker they control. And then Plated Onslaught, the go-wide, plus two, plus one pump spell. So that's kind of what I'm seeing as options. Like if we wanted to say the course, we could take maybe Experimental Augury, but it's it's kind of a little bit weaker. Um, but this is like a really tough path. Not really what you want to see after taking a blue and a green card. Yeah, my thoughts exactly. <laughs> really uh, kind of puts you in a hard position where you, you want to take the Vivisection Evangelist, but you know that's potentially putting you into you know three or four colors already. So personally, I think just to be disciplined, I would take a Branch Blight Stalker here. Uh, it is not a, uh, an ultra desirable body, but I will say it does fill a role, not necessarily as, uh, an aggressive card, but if you are, you know, uh, a deck that's trying to get to the late game, it does, uh, play the role of a two mana creature that trades up with something with three toughness. Yeah. And I think that's decent, especially in green blue. Um, if you're looking at that. Um, because you're not even really looking for the toxic side, though. I mean, you if you have enough proliferate, it could work out. Right. But mostly just like trying to stay alive because green-blue is really kind of like a slow ramp style deck. So having those two drops is pretty valuable. Exactly. Let's let's go with that pick and see like if we can go down that blue-green path. Now, if I were looking at this pack, I, I would actually just take the Vivisection Evangelist because if we see if we see like white black being open i'm perfectly fine to ditch the green and blue cards true true and then uh you know the vorak if we were like in green white maybe we could splash the evangelist but also i totally see what you're saying where it's like we're, we're just gonna we're definitely gonna throw away some picks if we take the evangelist so it's it's hard to say because i <laughs> i think if you're going by highest upside i mean there's there's no doubt about it vivisection evangelist is like uh, just a very powerful card but I've, I personally have train wrecked a lot of drafts where I'm <laughs> trying to pick up gold cards and uh, thinking that thinking that uh, lane is open. But Right, right. And with the rare missing and maybe like a hex gold slash or something, it's like there's such powerful commons and rares that seeing that really powerful card doesn't really tell us that much. Okay, cool. Right, exactly. So we've got the stalker. So, you know, we got a couple uh, couple green cards here. And let's let's see if we can lock in this lane or if we want to pivot all right so pick four there is another branch blight stalker that we could take if we want to follow up with some more three ones um now i'm not sure how much you like in blue green the meldweb strider but that's here that's the four and a blue five five vehicle that comes with a oil counter and you can either animate it by removing an oil counter or crewing uh it has crew three um have you played with that card at all uh yes i'm a huge fan of uh meldweb strider it's Really, blues one of few uh, uh, blues few ways of I guess interacting favorably on you know the toughness axis that red and green often have. You know, for instance, furnace strider. There, there isn't uh, really one particular creature that can block that favorably, other than meldweb strider. So, uh, or in blue. So, yeah, I'm, I've been a big fan of it in in blue decks. It uh, it does what you need it to, and you know, crew three while being steep. Uh, I think that there's enough. Uh, you know, three power creatures like, you know, Chrome Prowler at common. That's that's a fine way to, you know, crew this. And, and even, you know, you can do that at instant speed. 
on your opponent's turn. So um, yeah, big fan of the Strider. So the Strider is great. Um, my only like, and I think if we got one later, I'm like, that's fantastic. There's a few reasons I'm wary of it in this particular spot. First of all, we have two green cards and one blue card. Mm -hmm. So if we could take a green card here, we get deeper in green, and then it could kind of like let us be more flexible. Whereas if we take the Strider, it's kind of more locking us more down this lane. And then second of all, I think blue green, one of the kind of secret gold cards is the um, oil gorger troll. Yes. So the fact that you have like these premium five drops, like you know that you're going to get you enough of them. And I, I would be wary of like taking striders too aggressively for that reason, though I do really like the card as well. Now, there is one other common that just like sticks out to me because I just love this card and I can't help myself and I never pass it. <laughs> but it's um it's Axiom Engraver, right. which is the one in a red one three that rummages twice uh, or, or more if you can proliferate the oil counters. I love that card and I'd probably just be willing to kind of take it here on a flyer to see, you know, where where it's going to lead. But would you like it? So if you saw this pack, would you go with the Graver? Would you go with the Stalker? There's also a couple uncommons and rare, like a rare, but none of them are good. Uh, so yeah, those are basically our three options. Strider, Stalker, or the Axiom Engraver. Yeah, sure. Um, I agree with you completely. I think uh, this is probably a fine sign to pivot, uh, start pivoting into red. Axiom Engraver, uh, for those of you who played Brothers War, it functions very similar to Scrapwork Mutt, where you know, it will allow you to keep hands that you probably wouldn't keep otherwise, you know, you know, filtering for lands or spells. Yeah, so I think Axiom Engraver is, is a great pick. Uh, I, I do want to mention, because in the last pack we passed our Carnivorous Canopy, it's not a card that I'm always, uh, you know, willing to, to pick early, but I've found myself, uh, not only is it not a sideboard card, I, I've found myself main decking it occasionally, but... You know, so I, I think uh, just clocking it and just, you know, recognizing that that could be an option if we were interested in, in maybe like a more controlling build. Yeah, that's a good point. There's one in this pack, too. So we could maybe wheel either of those. Right. Um, and then, you know, thinking of those sideboard cards, picking up this engraver, you know, there were a few red cards that maybe could come back on the wheel as well. Like nothing was a standout, but you had mentioned a saw blade scamp earlier or like yes. a free from flesh. So there's like some floating pieces maybe for oil. Mm -hmm. So... Um, if it happens to be open, we might get some late pickups as well, which could be nice. But let's go with the engraver now. Absolutely. We haven't uh, haven't found out a lane at all yet. So we, we have two green cards, a blue card, and a red card, and they're kind of all over the place. Now, we could end up in blue-red oil as well. True. Um, or red-green oil. Those are kind of like the places I'm looking right now. But let's see what pick five has in store for us. So quite a doozy of a pack. So pick five... Um, just kind of sticking out like a sore thumb is uh, the green-black signpost uncommon already. So I'm like, you know, that card's really powerful. The Necrogen Rock Priest, it's the 1-5 that has Toxic 2, and all your Toxic Creatures deal extra Toxic damage. You can give Toxic Creatures Death Touch. Card's super powerful, but kind of not where we are. But then things that maybe go with our plan, there's a Chimney Rabble, so the 3-3 Haster that brings a buddy. That card's obviously really good. There's another Meldweb Strider, so if we're in the market for those, we might get some on the wheel, I think. Right. <laughs> um, some other good blue cards, uh, Experimental Augury, another one of those. A Chrome Prowler, I've been pretty impressed with that. The Flash Cat that taps something down. There's a Crawling Chorus, which is one of the best commons in white. Uh, the 1-1 one, one Toxic one. Yeah. Uh, we're really nowhere near that at all, but, I mean, it is notable that it's there. So, like, a really strong pack here. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm uh, going back through, I'm trying to see if there's 
there was ever a path where we could have gone into white, maybe in with the flensing raptor in pack two. Yeah, no, I, I, it, this is chimney rabble here for me. We're going full on into red. I mean, there's, there's like, not really a debate for me. <laughs> yeah, the only way I think is maybe if we third pick the vivisection evangelist, right? Then you could maybe fifth pick the crawling chorus. But right. Chimney rabble is so good that like I don't even mind the fact that we didn't go that way. And I agree. Like I think we just slammed the rabble. We took the engraver, which I think was the best card in the last pack. Ravel's like one of, if not the best card in this pack. So one of, if not the best cards in the set. <laughs> it looks so innocuous, but it's just one of the best commons, which is crazy. So I know it's it. Well, it's funny because we've seen that effect, you know, before with the, you know, hill giant that brings a brings a one one buddy, but the haste on it that that one keyword goes so far. All right. Well, we're we're looking, I think, pretty smart here because we're gonna look at this next pack and feel pretty pretty proud of of our decisions. So this next pack continues the red train because there's a barb batter fist, which is my most drafted common. I, I I can't help myself. I always pass it. There's also, you know, a duelist of deep faith, which if we had gone the crawling chorus potential alternate reality path. Yeah, that card's good, but we're not there. Mm -hmm. There's a slaughter singer, the green white uncommon. Again, I don't see how we would have ever been in that lane. I know there's a red sun's twilight, um, which uh, is a card that I found to be actually pretty good. The Red Red X, destroy X target artifacts, rare. Yeah. If X is five or more, then you make copies of them all. I, I find if I have enough Axum engravers, like usually if I have two, I'm pretty happy to just play it main, even like best of one. It's an amazing sideboard card. Um, sure. But for me, I'm slamming the batter fist. I don't know. But what about you? Oh, yeah. Easy batter fist. <laughs> not not uh, not really close. I think that, yeah, like like you're saying, a lot of different routes we could have gone down. But and, uh, you know, it should, should be noted that Red Sun's Twilight is basically uh, auto win against uh, Azorius artifacts. <laughs> Being able to, you know, blow up a cephalopod sentry and uh, copy it or or whatever. And I think when we look at like openness for a lane and finding a lane, you know, we started with some green and blue cards, but the fact that we got like a fourth pick red card and then a fifth pick and sixth pick red card, that actually means that like that's looking to be more open for our seat than where we started. Like we haven't seen anything on that Vorak level. We haven't really even, I mean, we've seen some good blue cards, right? But we took that to me as a mobilizer, but nothing on that level. So like I, at this spot, I'm feeling pretty comfortable for like, hey, I think red is probably going to be where we're going to be at, but we just need to see maybe what that second color is going to be. Yes. Okay, so pick seven. There's no red cards, so we don't even have to decide amongst that. Um, but there are blue and green cards that we can look at. So in blue, there's a Vivisurgeon's Insight, the uh, five mana draw three proliferate. There's an Escaped Experiment, which is just an artifact pulled card that we're not really interested in. But in green, there's... The fight spell, Ruthless Predation. There's another Branch Blight Stalker, the uh, two mana three one. And then at six mana, we got the big old chonker, the uh, Silvok Battle Chair, the uh, six six that you can move around the plus four plus four and trample uh, for seven mana equipped. So what are we thinking here? You know, um, gotta say, Colossal Dread Chair, very much impressed. Um, but I think just in terms of, you know, cards that affect the board state, probably have to go with ruthless predation uh the, the fight spell i think that's probably you know it it fills in the curve it enables you to uh you know get uh you know catch up when you're on the draw um but that being said it's it's very close because i've i've seen battle chair wheel so i think that's probably more why i would take the predation you know less likely to see the you know the, the removal wheel but you know i've seen a lot of games 
where two players are staring at each other and one player you know draws a battle chair and then the game is over basically yeah the game's just over god i love battle chair too i see i knew there was a reason i was bringing you on today yeah. yes <laughs> so long battle chair is so great i think i'd probably have my blinders on and like i'd get i'd just be like oh i love so battle chair i might just take it but you're right we have literally no way to interact and that's that's the thing a big problem in this format <laughs> it is yeah you know look you got to get on board you got to interact so i think the responsible thing is we take ruthless predation so we can just have that fight spell and just make sure we can interact with our opponents exactly now i'm feeling pretty comfortable that the red green lane is open but i think maybe we need like maybe just like one or two more picks to solidify that so let's just go a little bit deeper but you know things are looking really good for us in red green so pick eight before the wheel we have just fantastic more cards there's another bar batter fist which you oh, know is fantastic yes. there's a hunter's maze the green tap land mm -hmm. There's an unnatural restoration, which is not good. <laughs> um, anyways, there's Bar, Bar Batterfist and not a lot else, right? Yeah, I mean, um, I have been a huge fan of Titanic growth, actually, lately. That okay. Just, you know, plus four, plus four goes a long way. And especially if you have anything with Trample, it, it's it's quite good. But I mean, I agree with you. Batterfist, just all the way. You, you can't really go wrong with anything that is giving you a body and then also giving you another you know piece of material to work with like you know it's two resources two resources for uh for one piece of cardboard like can't really go wrong and i think you know you bring up a good point here where like if the bar batter fist weren't here we'd be pretty happy seeing that titanic growth because sure. it'd be a nice piece for like a red green beatdown deck oh, yeah we'd be taking that the fact that like the density of cards happen to be green in this pack because there have to be like three green cards and not really much else uh means that we're pretty much in that right lane and then if we remember our opening pack, there was literally no other green cards, so we're not really going to see anything wheel from there. But out of curiosity, let's see if the Sawblade Scamp or the Free From Flesh come back uh, in our final pick. So we do this. Um, wow, our table does not like blue cards. This is pretty funny. But that's also reality. You're right. <laughs> I was going to say. Um, okay, so... Then we wheel the Tainted Observer, the blue-green gold card came back, which is kind of interesting. But our our buddy Sawblade Scamp came back. Excellent. So, I mean, the fact that one out of the other two red cards came back, you know, we have a lot of oil setups. So, uh, you know, we're feeling pretty good about red-green in this spot, looking to go into that into pack two. And just as a reminder of cards we've taken, we've got a Sawblade Scamp. We've got two bar batter fists and a Ruthless Predation. We have uh, a Chimney Rabble up on, on four mana. An Axiom Engraver on two mana, feeling good about that. A Branch Blight Stalker on two mana in green that we're probably not going to play eventually, but also, you know, Contagious Borax. So, like, a really good start to a nice red-green deck here, and then hopefully, you know, pack twos and three would lead to getting maybe some more uh, high-impact cards and maybe a Hexcold Slasher too. But, yeah, that's, I mean, that's a nice start to the draft, and we didn't quite know our lane for a little while, so... A lot of fun there. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think that that definitely highlights a, a lot of like that pack one uncertainty where, you know, even if, you know, you'll maybe uh, not see your your what ends up being your second color for uh, a couple picks, you know, just just stay with it and, uh, you know, just keep keep picking the best cards. I think that's general uh, good heuristic. Excellent. Well, there we have it. Red green for that draft. Uh, best deck. Uh, never going to stop. Yeah. <laughs> so but we're going to have a main topic where pasta you've brought just a bunch of great ideas and we're going to jump through all of that but before we do i have a quick little mini game in honor of uh Frexia alchemy so there's 30 new cards in the set 
and a bunch of them are just completely busted in half. So it's kind of some of the fun of these uh, alchemy drafts is to see if you can get like the super busted alchemy cards. So I pick one in each color and a multicolor card. And your job is to guess with the 17 lands data as of today on recording, whether or not the card has a better or worse win rate than Jace Perfected Mind via, you know, Mythic Jace, 59.2% win rate, pretty much just like a bomb, but not in a great color. So is a card in the set better or worse than a 59.2% win rate, uh, your guess? So the first card up here is Kemba's Outfitter, and I'm going to read it because probably no one knows what these cards do. It's a single white for a 2-1, so not bad. And when it enters the battlefield, choose one. Choose an equipment card in your hand. It perpetually gains equip one. So now until the end of time, that equipment has equip one. Um, or target equipment you control perpetually gains equip one. So do you think this card, the little equipment cat, has a better or worse rate than Jace Perfected Mind? So anecdotally, I have actually gotten to play this card um, a little bit. Uh, it has It's felt very good. Um, I would probably say it does not just because i i could see it being you know a bad top deck for some players late game i don't know it's that that's tricky because it is savannah lines with upside mm-hmm. <sighs> you know let, let's just say higher because this is actually phyrexia one one drops are are important let's say higher all right it is close it's 56.3 percent all a right so okay. good guess on that one okay our next one is surgical metamorph this is, um, it's like a Fraction Metamorph variant. It's three and a blue for a zero zero. So starting off great. It's a shapeshifter at rare. And it says, it's also an artifact. It says this spell costs one less to cast if you weren't the starting player. So it's either four mana on the play or three mana on the draw. And it says you may have Surgical Metamorph enter the battlefield as a copy of any permanent on the battlefield, except it's an artifact in addition to its other types. So it comes in and copies the best thing on your side or your opponent's side, which I think is a big deal. So the question is, Surgical Metamorph, better or worse than Jace Perfected Mind? Yeah, I mean, I don't think, uh, I mean, I'm sure that uh, stats will say one thing, but I don't think that there's any way that this card could be worse than probably any other card in the set, just because on a head-to-head matchup, it just comes down and becomes that card, (laughs) right? I mean, this is any permanent. It can copy, it copies Jace, it copies Planeswalkers. I mean, it copies your opponent's Master Chord. Like, yeah, I, I don't think that there's, this this is, I don't want to say maybe like the the best card, but it is. It's I mean I think it's it's probably going to be better than Jace. All right, let's see. So I don't know how this card is so bad, but it has a forty eight point two percent win that rate. That is insane <laughs> to me. Okay, this that's they got to be a user thing. I mean, because like there's definitely some small sample sizes, but that's the fun. That thing. is why. I mean, it can be a three mana clone. <laughs> that's funny. Okay. Yeah, the card the card seems pretty busted, but no, this is great. Yeah, this is a great game. <laughs> Our next card in black is March Towards Perfection. So this is a single black for a sorcery at uncommon. It says you get a boon. So a boon is just like a thing that's going to happen. It's a delayed trigger. Sure. So you get a boon with when you cast your next Phyrexian creature spell, which is basically any creature. That creature enters the battlefield with an additional plus one plus one counter and death touch counter on it. So that's pretty sweet. And Draft a card from March Towards Perfection's Spellbook. So a spellbook is like 15 cards that you randomly get to pick one of three of those 15. It gives you a choice. So the spellbook is just a bunch of like random Phyrexian creatures um, from across like Magic's history. Some of them are a little bit mopey. Like there's the Soulless Jailer, 
uh, from this set, like the two mana 04. There's like Zenith Chronicler, the two mana 3 1 from this set. But like some of them, you've got Phyrexian Flesh Gorger, the uh, seven mana Mythic Rare uh, from Bro. You've got Archfiend of the Dross, the busted four mana 6 6 flyer from this set. You've got Phyrexian Obliterator, if you can pay black, 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 black. So, I mean, the, the spell looks like kind of spicy. Um, and it adds a Death Touch and plus one, plus one counter to the next creature you play for a single black mana. So, what do you think? I mean, it. Yeah, I mean, it's honestly, I think I kind of slept on it when I first read the spoiler, because I think in gameplay, it, it reads like, you know, a cantripping buff for your uh, creature that, you know, that and the cantrip is always drawing you like a, a usually pretty solid non-land. So I can't imagine that it is better than Jace, but I imagine it's probably solid. It's probably close, but uh, I would imagine it is not better than jace's win rate all right it is close i'll give you that it is slightly better no 61.5 percent march towards perfection (laughs) it's okay pasta you have you have three chances left no worries yeah march towards perfection just anecdotally i've had it a few times and i played it and then turn two i played an axiom engraver so i just had a two four death touch creature my opponent like could never attack it was incredible wow yeah that really, yeah, I mean, it, it, it is just very, you know, it's a lot for one mana. All right, speaking of a lot for low amounts of mana, we have uh, two and a red for our next card. It's Hex Gold Sledge, not Hex Gold Slash. So this is a four mirrored equipment. So it's a three mana, two, two, but what else do you get? So it's this an uncommon artifact. It says, when Hex Gold Sledge enters the battlefield, conjure a card named Goblin Gavalier onto the battlefield. Goblin Gavalier is a... 1-1 one, one Trample that has plus 3 plus 0 for each equipment attached to it. Okay, so you get a 2-2 two, two plus a 1-1 one, one Trample that you could move this to and turn it into uh, like a 4-1. Oh, it's, sorry, it gets plus 2 plus 0 for each equipment attached to it. So if you moved it over to that creature, it'd become a 4-1 Trample. But there's more. Hex Gold Sledge, the equipped creature gets plus 1 plus 0. So you're actually getting a 3-mana three 3-2 three plus a 1-1 one, one Trample. And it moves for Equip 1. Yeah, I've got to say, I mean, this seems probably like one of the better uh, of the 30 alchemy cards i mean it just sheer amount of like uh material that you're getting i i've i've got to say this this is def this has certainly got to be better than jace oh yeah this card's busted in half it's it's... yeah i mean no this is like just reading it it's like okay it's basically chimney rabble but a mana cheaper and it leaves an equipment yeah i think it's either the best or maybe like the second or third best yeah, it has a 69.2% win rate, which is higher than like Miglaws has in normal draft. <laughs> the uh, red, green, broken, rare. Um, now again, small sample sizes, but Hexwell Sledge is a card apparently you should never pass in Alchemy draft. So Sledge is, it is technically easier to cast yeah, than Miglaws. So all right, you, you completely <laughs> crushed it on that one. Very nice. Card. Oh, thank you. All right, two, two left to go here. Pharesis Roach um, is a single green for a 1-1 one, one toxic one. So kind of interesting there. And whenever Phoresis Roach deals combat damage to a player, insects you control, which itself is one, and insect cards in your graveyard, hand, and library forever gain toxic one. So it kind of grows its toxic plus all other insects, I guess, if you have insects yes. in your deck. <laughs> Uh, you know, I was I was pretty disappointed to uh, do a double check and, and see that the, the might tokens are actually not insects. So, <laughs> um, yeah, Phyresis Roach, uh, I have played with and against it and seen it snowball out of control really quickly. 
if it's unanswered. Mm-hmm. Um, that being said, and it, it is also a really good one drop for those green toxic decks. But uh, I think that being said, it can get blanked pretty easily. And like, you know, it's at the end of the day, if, you know, your opponent's got a full board and you top deck it, it's not really a great top deck. So I would say uh, worse than 59.2%. It's like Crawling Chorus plus, but also Crawling Chorus minus, you know, like. Yeah, exactly. The, it's it's like it adds a ton of variance to Crawling Chorus, which is kind of interesting. Okay, so you said worse than Jace on that one. It is 45%. Oh, wow. Uh, apparently, this card just, people have been tricked into putting it into their deck. And yeah. for every one game, it snowballs probably, like you said, every other game, it's like a one mana, one, one, doesn't do it. Right. It's just a blank. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. That card was really bad. And then our last card in the game is Contagion Dispenser. So, this is an interesting one. It's two blue and a green for a rare artifact that says, when it enters the battlefield, proliferate. So, that's kind of cool. And then whenever you proliferate during your turn, you get to draft a card from its spellbook. This ability triggers only once each turn. So it comes in, you proliferate, and you get a card. And then in future turns, you also get another card. So its spellbook is, uh, it has like Bloom Hulk, which is like a four mana four four that can proliferate. It's got Kinker Bloom from the set. It's got Contagion Clasp and Contagion Engine, which are these artifacts that come in and put minus one, minus one counters on things and proliferate. It's got basically every card in its uh, set proliferates, including the uh, there's the white and blue mythic sword from, I think it's Modern Horizons or something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyways, a bunch of busted cards. They all proliferate. So what do you think? So basically, like if you proliferate with this card, then it's going to give you another card that proliferates. So then it lets you just draft from the spell deck every single turn, which is kind of cool. Yeah, earlier today I had the, uh, I guess, displeasure of <laughs> losing... Uh, I, I had... Total inevitability. I was beating my opponent down, and they had like a very controlling, like five color alchemy good stuff deck, uh-huh. and they they had contagion dispenser, and just the the way that it plays out is basically every card that you draft from it drafts another card. So mm-hmm. it's basically if you're able to stay alive, it it's just an endless card advantage. It's engine. just infinite card. Yes. No. It was it was frustrating, but also very cool to see because like my opponent like contagion engined, which is basically like. It's a little like a artifact board wipe. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. It's um, the the card seems um, actually insane, but if you die before you can like cast it or do anything, it probably sucks. Right, right, right. <laughs> so, definitely. Yeah, I don't know. I I've got to say, I mean, it's in it's in blue and green, which are some of the the you know less desirable colors. I, it probably has a worse win rate than Jace, but like, I mean, I'm telling you right now, I think the card is good, and it, it can, probably can do very good in the hands of a good player. In a good deck yeah it makes sense but you're saying worse okay let's i'm see. saying worse all right it is kind of close it's uh 55.1 percent so you okay, went on that yeah, one so you, yeah you, i was gonna say you cleaned up in the second half there nicely done oh, so so <laughs> relieving yeah. now you know what i want to i want to come back to the surgical metamorph how is a clone doing that poorly that's wild yeah i don't really know i think i think like if you think about this format i think the creature sizing and like the abilities oh toughness and stuff yeah like the format is just power and toughness and you know how like this set is all about like secret gold cards and um you know two color cards and we're going to talk about that a little bit here later but like if your opponent plays like a mandible justiciar in, in yeah. blue white into an eye of malkator and you got this sitting in your hand yeah and you're in like let's say you're like blue green proliferate like do you want to copy their justicar justiciar or their eye of malkator you're kind of like 
I guess. I but know. like, yeah. none of that synergizes what what you're doing. It's true. Um, so that, my guess is that's kind of what it is. Yeah, yeah. That that must be it. Strange. <laughs> also, yeah, like you said, maybe maybe pilot error in terms of just not yeah, because like you know the the way I see it is like you know you just play it against a planeswalker deck. That would be good. <laughs> Um, anyway, well, that was a really fun game. Thank you for, yeah, I, I thought that was cool. I, I, uh, just for what it's worth, I think that, uh, these particular alchemy cards have been very fun. And, uh, like I, I mentioned earlier, I think they, they did, uh, in like horizon, alchemy horizons, Baldur's gate. I thought that some of the specialized stuff was a little in the weeds. I thought it was a little, um, you know, over maybe, uh, even needlessly complex, mm-hmm. but I think that a lot of these seem very like striking a nice balance between um you know complexity and elegance yeah i think i i I agree i really enjoy doing these like alchemy alchemized versions of draft because it's only like for like a week and a half so it feels kind of special it's fun to do and then you basically never do it again until the next time they do it with a different set but i think like the first few times they were doing that like just every card just drew a card like every single turn even like all the uncommons and it just like was silly and stupid but like i feel like these cards are like pretty much all busted but yeah busted in maybe like different ways like some of them you do have to get on board or like like you're saying the blue green contagion dispenser like at least that one it's like in a bad color pair it's expensive and slow yeah so it's like i think yeah they did a good job this time all right well that does segue us into um the mind topic nicely which you've kind of prepared a bunch of kind of bullets on different different like subtopics for as a main topic um but i think First up, you did you had some ideas about one alchemy overall. You're saying, hey, you like it, but what are some ideas about you know this particular set that make it maybe different from Crutchell B1 is just a normal set, or what maybe compared to different alchemy sets? I'm not sure exactly. But what have you brought for us today on one alchemy? Yeah, so uh, I think in general, um, when the designers are are coming up with these alchemized designs they are mainly looking to balance uh, color imbalances, you know, and, and we actually saw that uh, in Alchemy Horizons Baldur's Gate. Uh, Sirkovitz, um, shout out for, for him and all of his data work, uh, had, um, you know, really interesting uh, take that it, uh, the alchemized uh, Baldur's Gate actually did a so much for, like, color balance. So I, I think that it actually can do a lot. Uh, these... I think uh, from what I've seen uh, for the, the one alchemy, um, it does feel like a lot of the, um, there, there is a little more support for toxic, you know, here and there, just, just a few, you know, toxic creatures here and there. Um, but yeah, I think uh, they did for the most part, a good job, not giving, you know, the, the red and green uh, and white colors, too many uh, strong cards. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, so I I think uh, overall I've I've liked uh, every you know card design um, every alchemized card design from the set that I played with. Uh, I uh, just just for example, like I I, th- I think Phyrexian Scrapyard, very strange card, but it's but it's very it, you know I I did the thing and you know discarded discarded the the cards and got my six six and. It was it was pretty cool. Yeah. So so for folks who probably don't know what that card is, so Frexian Scrapyard. I also did the thing with this card, so it was kind of sweet. Nice. Um, it's a rare land, and it taps for uh, colorless, and you can pay one tap, discard a card from your hand to get another copy into your hand, and then you can pay two tap and sacrifice three Frexian Scrapyards to put a Soul of New Frexian into play, which is a 
like a six six, and you can pay it's six six trample. You can pay five to give your things indestructible, but you could also remove it from your graveyard to do that ability once. Um, so kind of like a slow engine to eventually get like a six six directly into play. Which I agree, like it's kind of a nice. It's like an alternate version of an axiom engraver kind of like late game you're just turning your lands you draw and eventually they turn into a six six right instead of like drawing into more spells like you know what spell you're going to get eventually and yeah that card's like a fun mini game for sure like you're it gives your opponent a lot like a few turns but not a ton of time right but then if they have you know um one of those catch-all answers like planar disruption and you just sacrifice three of your lands you're like wow like what did i just do to myself so it's kind of a yeah, fun. And, and that's what I was saying. It, it feels bad. You know, designs like that are, are good because they feel balanced. It's not like, a, you know, the uh, Hourglass Coven where it's basically just game over when it hits that. For sure. And you you were mentioning with like the Alchemized um, rebalancing with um, Horizon Baldur's Gate, but I think there are kind of like two waves. So there's this alchemy set where it's like they add the cards and it's supposed to be like, I think constructed plants essentially for like alchemy constructed, mm. but then also they have been doing some like rebalancing. So it's as usual, everything is confusing and there's so many different things happening with magic and arena. But I think when the sets aren't balanced, then they do like some rebalancing to the cards so that when you play it again in the future, like some of the cards are different. So it changes their stats. And um, no, so I just wanted to clarify on that, but I think you're right. Like with Horizon Baldur's Gate, they did that. And they actually, I didn't actually get around to playing it, but they actually just did the same thing to like Streets of New Compendium randomly where... I was just... Yeah, yeah. so they like rebalanced that and I never got to try it this time around, but I would maybe be interested in trying it eventually. So I wonder because Freckshot will be one is so imbalanced and like blue is so clearly worse. um, And also, you know, black needs some help as well. Like what they might do to kind of change the set where if they just tone down some of the best cards and the best colors or what they like to do, I think more often than not is like make the bad cards better to bring it up. It'd be interesting to see like what they would do with this set to actually make a difference. Like they could do simple things, right? Like where if, um, like if they made Glistener Seer an 04 instead of an 03, like that would just brick wall, you know, all your opponents bar batter fist, for example. Um, so I don't know. We'll, we'll have to wait and see if they end up doing that in the set. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, shout out for uh, um, Two Ducks Cubed, uh, Carl, on uh, Twitter from a Mystical Dispute. He had a, a cool Twitter post just kind of like about his take on rebalancing black and blue and, and kind of put out some like basically alchemized cards that he came up with. Uh, yeah, really, really some cool stuff. Uh, a lot of just like cost, re- you know, kind of like cost reduction here and there. Like, for instance, like prologue to phyresis like making that like one mana or like and one one in a uh, phyrexian mana or something um yeah just just little things like that so yeah i i agree you know we we will see we'll see nice and like i said you brought a bunch of other um really interesting topics some of the things we're going to talk about um is kind of quick hits on uh you know m- mulliganing some strategy on that you know, predicting combat mass, secret gold cards, which we already kind of touched on, but we'll go more in depth than that. Um, so we're just going to go down this list of, you know, some interesting topics that you've brought to the table here. So, you know, we were talking about just a few minutes ago, why that surgical metamorph, this clone, why might that card not actually be that impressive in this format? And we talked about how, you know, creature stats is really what matters. Uh, being in your lane is what really matters. And so you have kind of broken down why this format maybe is so 
driven by some of these creature stats and like kind of what to be looking out for in terms of that to help improve your win rate. So what are some of these cards that like you're looking for? Um, and like, why, why do the creature stats like matter so much in your eyes in the set? Yeah. Um, so specifically, I think this is a set that encourages blocking. And so the main way that your creatures are going to be blocking is, you know, with their toughness, I guess. And, you know, making sure that you have creatures with, uh, you know, enough toughness and also enough power to, uh, threaten an attack on the crackback. You know, all of these are just, uh, you know, kind of interwoven. And, um, you know, in particular, I think that they're in this set, I've, I've seen, you know, some particularly just um, good cards for their rate, you know, mana value specifically, the, the ratio of specifically mana value to power and toughness cumulatively. So just a few of these, I guess, you know, the, I think in the forefront of uh, a lot of players' minds in this, um, in this format is Furnace Rider, you know, that's, it, you, you just, you won't be able to play against a red deck and, and probably not see that. Um, and like Basilica Shepherd. You know, these are just five mana cards that come down and just have a lot of stats, you know, uh, respectively. Uh, Furnace Rider is um, five mana value for nine cumulative power and toughness, and Silica Shepherd is five mana value for 10 cumulative power and toughness. So, you know, beefy, it's a lot. And I think part of this, uh, you know, power arms race sort of uh, might come down to... Uh, I think Hazardous Blast uh, being a big part of the format and basically just being able to accrue enough power onto the board, um, you know, but even outside of that, I think just, uh, you know, because all the, you know, common stats are, you know, can, can be a little pushed, I think that, um, yeah, uh, for, for the most part, going with these higher rate cards is going to leave you with a better deck. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And and I always try to think of like stats as being you kind of get like two stats for one mana, if that makes sense. Yeah. Like we always think of like two twos for two, three threes for three, you know, now four fours for four. And it, it kind of keeps up with that and it can kind of ramp up one way or the other or curve in different ways. But that's kind of how it goes. But when you start to add um, like abilities on top of those stats so that they're impacting the game faster than you might expect, like you were mentioning like. You know, Basilica Shepherd as this five mana flyer that that puts you know ten power and toughness into play. So it is matching that ratio, right? Like for five mana, I might expect to get about ten power and toughness cumulatively. But the fact that you're getting the three three flyer as that piece to it, where like y you have evasion on that, so you would normally just expect to to pay for that flying. But here, you're not really paying too much for that flying because you're getting you know admittedly weaker creatures. They don't they can't block. But you're getting like this bonus on top of it, so it's like even more impactful. Or I like your example with Furnace Strider. Like, I might expect to pay five mana and get maybe ten power and toughness spread out across that. Like, maybe I'll get a four six or um, a you know a five five. But the fact that this can have haste and also haste the next thing means that um, you're really it's it's almost like it's costing four because it's attacking immediately, right? And so for four mana, you're you're getting nine power and toughness rather than waiting for uh, all the way going up to five so it's like it's almost like it's half a mana cheaper or a whole mana cheaper which is is pretty impressive same with chimney rabble right the reason i think we're we're duped repeatedly by chimney rabble it doesn't look that impressive because at four mana value you expect to get about you know eight power and toughness and that's exactly what we see on this card but not only is it spread across two bodies which is going to function a lot better in this set allowing you to attack and block but you know six of it has haste so 
it's almost like you're getting this for three mana because it just comes down immediately and you're just getting to crash in and the one one happens to be really good against the three ones in the format on top of that so when you break it down that way and you see that you're actually getting even more because of these like abilities on these cards then the raw stats tell like half the story and they're already pushed and then on top of that you're getting everything else like another good example you know it's a higher rarity but earlier we talked about big laws the green red three mana four four well it already breaks past what we would expect because you're getting eight power and toughness for three mana so it's above rate and then on top of that its abilities can actually randomly just give it plus two plus two or plus four plus four so like you can never interact with it in combat and it just allows you to repeatedly put these cards that actually exist above the curve faster 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 and if your opponent ever falls behind because a bunch of these cards are doing that your opponent never gets like a window to breathe whereas in some sets it's like yeah okay you played your three mana four four that's fantastic but then the next turn you play like some two four that has like some random ability and your opponent's like okay whatever like i now have a moment to breathe this set you're like i had played my three mana four four and now i play my chimney rabble and you're dead yeah exactly <laughs> so it's just kind of out of control for sure yeah and and it's so funny you know just to follow up like you know, Sinar Corsair is not an exciting card, but when you have a Sinar Corsair that draws you a land, then you're starting to get into like some, some spice territory. You know, I'm talking about Contagious Vorak, which, you know, a 3 3 for 3, we've seen that before, but, you know, when it starts giving you a resource or like with Furnace Punisher, where, you know, it just, it's a Sinar Corsair with Menace, but there's some slight upside very, very occasionally. Yeah, I, I think that you, you've really uh, hit on it where it's it's not just that these are well-statted creatures for their rate it's that you're also getting some additional upside in the form of a keyword or an ability yeah vorak is like particularly egregious too because i'm talking about how like some sometimes the reason that these creatures on rate like aren't that big a deal is because for you to go like two drop three drop four drop five drop etc like you need the perfect mix of lands and spells to do that optimally but vorak's just like well as long as you get to three I'm going to give you your fourth land most of the time, and then you can continue curving out. So, like, exactly. It, it seems innocuous on the surface, but the reason, part of the reason that, like, green red with these chimney rabbles and furnace striders is so sick with these contagious borax is that, like, it enables the rest of that curve out. And I, I think that can be true for, like, you know, across the board with some of these other cards as well. Um, you're not paying that much for a lot of the abilities on top of it. So, as long as you can put your cardboard into play, then you're going to be able to benefit well from that. Um, you also mentioned, and I think, you know, a personal pet card of mine, something I love, you have Cruel Grimnark yes. mentioned here, which is, <laughs> you know, six mana for, you know, admittedly five, five death touch. So you're not getting the six mana for 12 uh, power and toughness, but you're not really overpaying by that much. And the death touch you're you're really not paying that much for that ability and it means your opponent is going to have to like often double block it yes. to trade with it and it's always going to get value off of that and then if you happen to have like a pump spell or removal spell the fact that it has death touch on top of it means your your opponent never wants to block a death touch big death touch creature with more than they have to block it with, exactly which is i think like part of the secret of like these giant death touch creatures so your opponent's like well i've got three three threes right and normally, when your opponent attacks you with a 5-5, five five, you put three 3-3s three on it in case they have a combat trick or a removal spell. And you're like, aha. But 
giant death touch creature, they're like, well, I'm going to block with exactly two three threes because I don't want to lose my third three three for nothing. You kill their their creature and now like you're rumbling. And the fact that they already discarded a card means now you've already gotten a three for one and your creature's you know not even dead yet. So it's it, <laughs> um, it, I love that card. It's really impressed and especially you know I think in in like a green black shell where you know you're hitting your land drops, you've got your rest fine cultivators to get it out early. I mean, I had someone who. They had like two or three Rustvine cultivators. They just powered one out on like it was like turn four, and I was like, okay. I mean, I just I just can't do anything. <laughs> so anyway, yeah, I I think that the you know it's keyword large is good in this format, and I think that's that's something that that has been pervasive about Phyrexia one. On one of these points, I really really like it, and uh, you mentioned the four mirror and equipment. So like also maybe like some of the bigger ones, even like the not so great ones like uh, Mirror and Bardish. I still know how to say that word, uh, Bardiche or Bardiche, <laughs> whatever. Okay, we're going to go with the the white equipment, the <laughs> five mana, four, three, that can re-equip. So these cards are just stats on top of it, but I think, you know, this format, because of that snowball nature we just talked about, like, you have to do literally everything you can in your power to try to keep up with that snowball and trying to be able to block. Like you said, it's a blocking format because you can't just fall behind. But then because of that, once you've traded off, like it makes these four mirrored equipments actually like really impressive. It's like why you mentioned in the draft, like we both wanted to take the Silvok battle chair, but we're like, ah, I guess, you know, we should be responsible to take the fight spell. I know. <laughs> but it's like, yeah, you're constantly trading because you just want to make sure you don't get overrun with these giant stats. And then because of that, the games actually often come down to like who can you know, equip something two or three turns in a row with these giant premiered equipments, which is a reason like I always try to prioritize them if I can, because um, this format does ironically come down to top decking more than you expect for a format that is the fastest of all time on arena. <laughs> um, yeah, so love that point. And then let's see, were there any other particular cards or stats you wanted to talk about? Um, I I think um, Cinder Slash Ravager, just because it is just, I, I think that that really epitomizes this point because just because it can come down for so cheaply. I mean, I, I've actually cast it for two mana a lot more times than I thought I would. And it's, wow, that's sick. It's just, I mean, it's just gross having a two mana five, five Vigie that also has a mini like Pyroclasm on your opponent's board. So I, I, yeah, I mean, Cinder Slash Ravager and like Cephalopod Sentry too, you know, the, I think the gold cards really, uh, yeah, they mostly are very well statted. And then I guess just like finally, the, uh, uh, a point we'll get to later though, is uh, I think that there is a penalty that you incur on your deck if you have too many X1s. Like I was just draft, I just had an Azorius draft before this. Everything was going really well. <laughs> and, uh, you know, just opponent uh, was able to hold out long enough against my uh, my mandible Justiciars and drop their Cinder Slash Ravager. And, you know, there goes my board and also the game. So, <laughs> yeah, it is it is the uh, Justiciars enemy, and which is unfortunate because that card is like so key to a specific archetype, right? So you, you have to play them. Yeah, you can't not. But <laughs> it's also maybe why that archetype is held in check. Yes, so. exactly. All right. Well, this next point. So number two, you say some synergy pieces are anti-synergistic so that's kind of a an interesting idea so what do you mean by that this was just something that uh we were just uh it came up during my stream when we were talking about it and uh, it came up with orthodoxy enforcer where it's such a like we were saying on rate a four mana four four vigilance or i, I it's it's a 
it's a four mana two four that gets plus uh, or a four mana two four vigilance that gets plus two attack if you control two or more artifacts, uh, and you know which is pretty easy to enable. And I think that my issue with it though is that you know it's such a great it's such a well statted card and it you know it does theoretically go very well in equipment decks. But the issue if you know you're running a full artifact deck, it itself is not an artifact. And so I guess it, it kind of run in, it runs into that issue of, you know, where if you, you know, need synergy pieces that are not themselves of, you know, pro- providing any of that synergy, then, you know, you, you can, you can run into, you know, some gaps. I mean, obviously you'll, you know, you'll run it if you have to, but uh, I think the, the other most salient uh, example here is like Urabrask's Anointer. It is a you know four mana two four when it enters the battlefield deals damage equal to the uh, number of oil counters on permanents you control. It doesn't have any oil itself, so I've seen plenty of times where you know because because there's no oil on it itself if you're uh, if you play it and you're counting on doing a, a specific you know number of damage and your opponent has instant speed interaction and can you know change that number. Yeah, that that can. It, 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 I've just noticed that uh, because it does not have oil itself, it it needs other things to be good, and that can that can just uh, I feel like lead people into traps. I guess where uh, where you're building for you know the sake of synergy when really it's it's better to be playing for uh, or building your deck for the sake of uh, you know just having a, a cohesive game plan. Yeah, for sure. Like the number of times where I've taken an early herbrass anointer because i'm like well maybe i'll get there and then it's like you only have like you know six six seven oil cards at the end and you're like eh, it's gonna deal like one damage or whatever i'm gonna trade off my oil cards before i even get this thing down it's just um i think they didn't want to make this card too pushed and get you know get the oil player the herbrass anointer uh later in the draft but then sometimes by doing that it just doesn't fuel itself and then so no one wants it a lot of the time and it's just awkward i guess it uh it is probably just uh most apparent coming off the the heels of call time where we had basalt ravager you know um four mana uh four two comes in deals damage equal to uh the highest amount of creatures you control uh, or highest uh type um creature type um, uh, yeah creature type among creatures you control and uh it would always count itself that's the thing it's like even on an empty board, it comes down and deals one. And that can make all the difference if, you know, your opponent's beating you down with like a one toughness flyer, just kind of down and kills that. But Urbrass Anointer, you know, coming down on an empty board and dealing zero, that, you know, is, that's a knock against it, so. Yeah, you would not want a four mana four to do nothing. That that does not pass the uh, power and toughness stats we were talking about. <laughs> yeah, especially uh, especially with Shock or uh, Hexfold Slash. In yeah, that, that card changes a lot of card evaluations for sure single-handedly you know as you mentioned that i kind of just kept thinking about like corrupted in general too and i think maybe it's the reason that you know i'm so trying like i gravitate so much to red in this format because it doesn't ask anything of you it's just like you know put power in play and attack your opponent but whenever i'm trying to draft like these you know white black corrupted decks or you know maybe green white sort of corrupted but poison it's like the more corrupted cards you put in your deck the the less space you have for the actual toxic cards right or the you know the proliferate cards and so it's like you're always doing this delicate dance where like the card itself like you said is kind of anti-synergistic because if those corrupted cards aren't online often they're generally like pretty bad or at least mediocre right like you know i talked about maybe we were going to third pick the white black gold uncommon which when it turns on it's a four four 
comes in play and kills your opponent's best thing, which is like a ridiculous card for five mana. When it's not online, it's just a five mana four for vigilance, which is fine, but it's not a good card, right? Like you're not happy to run that at that rate. So the more of those like quote unquote good corrupted cards you have that you're playing, like the less they'll actually be turned on, which is just like this interesting tension with the mechanic in general. And so you need like every single card in your deck to point in that direction. You know, it's also kind of like I have Malkator, where like you need every single card to be an artifact in your deck. Now that one is not anti-synergistic with itself. In fact, it does, you know, scry to help you find your next artifact. But it does point to that all-in nature of the format where like you just have no room for any nonsense. That's not exactly what you're trying to do, which makes the drafts really hard to navigate. Because sometimes like you're wide open into in white green, but all you see is you know, white artifacts and green oil creatures. And you're like, well, this is, this is nonsense. <laughs> it's like, it just happens, you know? Yeah, <laughs> that would be a strange deck. Um, no, I'm so glad you mentioned that because there, it, oftentimes when I'm getting into like any of the, I guess, Abzan toxic decks, any of that, that uh, deck space, I find myself, I, I, I've, I've got to say as far as like bone picker scourge, that just it just feels like a card that looked so great in preview season you know it's a build your own vampire nighthawk but i just find myself hardly ever running it because in decks where i care about getting poison uh on my opponent i want everything to have toxic or i want my corrupted payoff to be like we were saying the vivisection evangelist where it's like just that good that if you get it if you get it turned on like it's just that good i think the the other corrupted card that obviously uh is like sinew dancer where basically unplayable if you don't have uh corrupted turn on but you know if you do it can be so great you know one mana tapper there's a reason they don't print those anymore they're they're very very powerful cards especially for limited so yeah i i I agree with you i think it's a very interesting tension between um you know having enough enablers yeah circovitz you know second shout out today it's getting a little excessive for this guy but um he was (laughs) saying on his latest um seminars uh about these bot drafts now that those exist for the uh the quick drafts online sinew dancer is the most improved card overall like it's not a card that's particularly good in you know premier draft with humans but apparently these bot drafts, a bunch of the, you know, white and black and green, like these absent toxic creatures are going way later. So what that means in bot draft is you can kind of sure. get a bigger critical mass. And so the senior dancer is online more, and then it's a great card. So it just kind of points to show like, yeah, if you happen to have all these corrupted payoffs and like you're able to enable them, like they're fantastic. But going into the set, I'm like, oh yeah, people are just going to be having poison counters all the time. And the way it plays out and it being a blocking set and you really want to stop your opponent from giving you those poison counters, it actually doesn't happen that often. Like, unless a deck is solely interested in killing you with poison damage, which they definitely exist, the ones where it's kind of like a mix match, this and that, like almost every single time they kill you with damage rather than poison counters. And then, you know, you're mentioning Bone Picker Scourge. I agree, like not a card you usually want to play. You want to pick something that's going to help enable your, your better, you know, corrupted payoffs like the evangelist like you'd rather be playing you had mentioned the you like infectious inquiry the uh the draw two that gives your opponent a poison counter like that being your three drop there to kind of refuel and keep your plan going yeah you know either corrupted or setting up a poison kill eventually just makes so much more sense from that three drop perspective than just putting this random two two that you hope one day is going to be great um because you may never make it to that day and uh, and you you remind me of 
the one other card that I really had high hopes for, but really just what has been terrible. It's the Chittering Skitterling, the uh, the three mana one four. Oh, yeah. yeah. You like sack things to draw cards, but only if your opponent's corrupted. It's like, oh, that looks great. And then I was like, again, but if I'm playing that and I'm not playing like a toxic creature over it or some way to give my opponent a poison counter, I'm not getting it online. Not to mention like, if everything's going smoothly and I have a bunch of toxic creatures in play, like I really don't want to sacrifice them. So, I mean, it has multiple problems in the format, but it just didn't work out. Yeah. I, you know, and, and, and that one, that one in particular, because it literally has no text on it. If you don't have right. your opponent corrupted, <laughs> I think, I think that's, that's, if there were some, you know, some uh, ability on it, it, I think would be a little bit better. And, and I do, I do think that, uh, you know, it has a place, you know, for those morbid triggers on blight belly rat and uh, gulping scrap trap. Like I've had, you know, a, a few games in blue black where like skitterling comes down and, you know, it's mm-hmm. just the card I need. But that's very, I would say, kind of few and far between where you're just actively like wanting right, to sack right. your board. <laughs> the next kind of bullet point you said here, number three, you said um, mulligan decisions are pivotal in this format. You need, uh, you know, a good land and early spell ratio. You need to consider your you know, like on the play versus the draw, which you need to succeed with those hands. And then you also have some points about like the best of one hand smoother versus uh, what to keep in best of three, all this types of stuff. So mulliganing uh huge in this format maybe more so than any other limited format i can even like call to mind right now so i think this would be a great opportunity for like you know the listener here with the level ups like mulligans one of the hardest elements to discuss but also to get right in terms of your gameplay you know leveling up and limited so i'd love to hear you know any insights you've had with uh, how you've been mulliganing what you've been succeeding with etc Absolutely. Um, I think uh, for the most part, I subscribe to a uh, shout out for uh, Alex Nikolich, uh, Court of Calls. Um, I, I generally like to mulligan as like little as possible, <laughs> if that makes sense. You know, if my if my hand looks playable, like I'd like to I'd like to keep it, you know, giving up that one card as trivial as it seems, it can actually make a big difference. You know, if you're down a card and you're, you know, you're, you're just like wondering like, okay, like how did, when did my opponent get up on cards on me? You know, sometimes it's just that mulligan, you know, just starting one card down that can make a big difference. So with all that being said, I think in this format, it is just so key to make sure that you have something to do, if not on the first turn of the game, then on the second and third turns of the game. Um, you know, I, I think that a lot of games in this format are won and lost literally in those first three turns. Like for instance, let's say you go crawling chorus, duelist of deep, duelist of deep faith into uh, flensing raptor. Your opponent doesn't have anything until like their contagious Vorok on turn three. They've already taken so much toxic damage. Like odds are, it'll be really difficult for them to come back, especially if you have any removal spell. Um, so I think for me, it's. Uh, important to think about that a decent six card hand is better than like a like bad seven card hand uh and i think that the same uh knowledge is is uh, I, th- I think that's also true for um for a, for a five card hand i think for me personally that's kind of where i start drawing the line is like if i'm having to mull to four then it starts getting like okay unless i'm getting something absolutely amazing it's not worth it and i think this uh, pulls me back to my point of if uh, when you're building your deck, it's really important to be thinking about what are my absolutely best starting hands? Like what is the nut draw here? That's going to like, let me curve out and just run over my opponent. 
And then what is like an average starting hand that I could, you know, reasonably expect to see. And like, you know, this is, this is a hand that it might not let me like run over my opponent and win immediately, but I can certainly, you know, play some creatures and, and, and do something. And I think, uh, you know, finding a, a balance between, you know, knowing that what you have in your hand is just about as good as you're going to get versus what you have in your hand is okay, but you could mull and theoretically get that nut draw with your crawling chorus and duelist of deep fake. Yeah. And I mean, even, even besides just like trying to get like your optimal draw, I think you, it's a great point you bring up that it's incredibly deck specific. Like if you're being responsible in the draft, you should more than likely have enough ones, twos and, you know, threes, but mostly ones and twos to get on board early so that you're not going to have to mulligan as much because like, let's say you have a, a deck that you only have like four things to do before turn two, like turn turn one or two. Well, in that deck, you know, if you have like four lands in your opener and you've got a three drop, four drop, five drop, well, you're kind of in an awkward spot because if you had drafted a deck that had seven or eight two drops instead, or seven or eight, you know, one or two drops, you can easily mulligan this hand because then you can just say, well, especially if you're on the draw, if you're on the draw, like you could easily mulligan this hand. Because you know that if you're in that situation you described, where even if your three drops like really good at stabilizing the board, even if something like contagious Vorak gonna come down, you know, pretty sizable chunky creature gonna block, even if that's the case, you're gonna be so far behind that you kind of have to mulligan. But if you drafted your deck and you only have like four possible cards you can actually draw to, even with a mulligan, suddenly it's like well, you you can't actually mulligan this hand because the opportunity, like you're going to mulligan it and you're going to get like a six card hand a lot of the time where you still don't have an early play. (laughs) And And it's going to be worse than your your nice like three, four, five curve. So like you have to kind of understand like what your specific deck is because you're going to have those drafts where like, yeah, it's not optimal where you only got four things to do, you know, turns one or two. But there are those drafts where it's like, I'm really, really, really trying to prioritize my two drops and I just don't see them. Or like, they're really junky and they're not even that good. Yeah. And so every once in a while, it's kind of like, you got to think about your deck. And then also one reason that I particularly like best of three more in this set is that it does allow you to kind of cheat a little bit in terms of the way that you, you draft and construct your deck. Because... With the best of one hand smoother, you literally just have to be ready for your opponent to have a turn two play literally exactly because they're they're gonna have you know two land and three land hands, which means they're gonna have four or five spells in hand, which means you know on average one of them you know assuming they drafted reasonably they're gonna have that two drop right so you have to come prepared for that and then exchange those resources and then it becomes this like essentially war of attrition and you want to have like we were saying the the four mirrored equipment to go over the top etc cetera, etc cetera. but in best of three if you could get anywhere from you know two to five uh, lands in your opening hand it changes it a lot right because your opponent has the same assumptions so they're gonna less frequently have exactly you know four or five spells in their hand which means if they have like a four land hand and they happen to only have like a two drop but not a three drop then the fact that you only had a three drop on the draw is like not as big a right. deal. So it's like that literal, like I was talking about that snowball effect. Part of the problem, like part of the reason Chimney Rabble was so good, we talked about is the fact that it's part of a like two, three, four curve, five curve. Whereas 
if you just isolate that single piece, like that single card, it's not really that big of a deal. So you kind of got to think about like the format in particular, what's expected of it, and then like draft in a way so that you're actually able to make those mulligans because otherwise you're just going to be down cards because you've heard like pretty much, you know, I listen to a lot of podcasts. You you clearly listen to a lot of limited content podcasts too, where that's the prevailing wisdom where it's like, if you don't have something to do by turn two in this format, you have to mulligan. And I think that's definitely true, but I just want to caution about like using that overly so without thinking about like, well, what actually is going to happen when I mulligan on average with this deck? Um, it's another also, like if we look at specific cards as examples, one of the reasons I love Axiom Engraver, it just means that I get to keep a giant wide range of hands and I don't have to mulligan as much because in this particular format, like mulliganing, you have to do it a lot. But if you can find ways to not have to mulligan, aka having for mirrored and equipments, having Axiom Engravers, you know, take like even sphere lands, which aren't that good. But if you happen to have like one of those and eventually you can turn it into a card. Like if you happen to have these ways where they just smooth your game, you get out of some of these situations where you're just at the mercy of the cards, um, which is sometimes what one feels like. You're like, ah, what could I have done? But there's actually kind of a lot you can do in terms of the planning before you actually get into the games, because at that point, you're right. Like you kind of just have to make the best of it. Yeah. And and just put a cap on it. I think <laughs> it's funny. I started thinking this way it, distinctly during like Dominary United, where basically... And I think it was specifically because of Flowstone Infusion, the existence of that card, of just like, if I, if my opponent has removal and they, and they remove my like first creature of the game, like how bad is that for me? Like, like kind of thinking like if my opponent is curved out and like I play one creature and they've got removal and they like swing at me for five, like, can I realistically come back from that? Uh, and, and just thinking about it in terms of like, yeah, making sure that you have a lot enough redundancy in your starting hand. Like, if you just have one creature and you're just planning on that being your blocker, you're going to be in for a bad time. Yeah, I think fantastic point. And also, you know, we we mentioned hex gold slash a lot because it's just such a pillar of the format. But when you're playing something like green white toxic, right? In those decks, you want to have such a lean curve so that your opponent is forced to use their hex gold slash early because they don't want to fall behind. And then when you play your indoctrination attendant or you play like your four, four toxic creature or whatever, they've already used their hex code slash on like your two or three drop because they're just trying to stay alive. And then you're, you don't get completely blown out by the fact that they kill your four drop for one mana. So if you can make it awkward for your opponent by building your deck in an efficient way, um, you're going to get a lot of unseen wins from that where like, if you, if you didn't stop to think about how exactly that game played out, you'd be like, oh, well, I won because, you know, I had a good curve. But you also kind of won because you forced your opponent to use a card that was good against your four drop on your two Absolutely. drop. And now you're going to win from there. So it's just like another reason that you want to try to really optimize those curves in this format. Yeah. Okay. Uh, point number four that you've brought today, you said predictive combat math. So kind of thinking ahead, what kind of combat tricks, what what's your opponent kind of doing in terms of poison counters? Like, are they trying to get corrupted? Are they trying to get you to 10 poison? Um, how can you use life as a resource, but also make sure that you block enough so you're not taking damage or poison counters when you don't need to? A lot to unpack here. So uh, yeah, I'd love to talk about combat math. What have you brought for us here? Yeah, so um, the, the reason I mainly wanted to talk about this is uh, I, it was just a point that my chat... Um, 
just repeatedly kept bringing up and uh, that something that I just kept noticing is, you know, games were just won and lost very often at either a very low life total or very high poison count. And I think a lot of that comes down to there are a lot of tricks in this format that can, you know, give uh, a large burst of damage and uh, the existence of Hazardous Blast. And uh, it's, it's really interesting because poison can uh, deal out uh, a burst of damage, so to speak, because you have cards like, uh, you know, Prosthetic Injector, you have cards like Necrogen Communion, where all those, uh, although those are uncommon, you also have things like Charge of the Mites, which can flash into, you know, two extra toxic attackers, um, you know, just, just a, f- a few different ways that you can sneak in that, that toxic damage. So I think it, it is really important to be thinking multiple turns down the line where it's like, okay, if I make this block now, I'm theoretically giving myself a few more turns to, you know, uh, of like breathing room of life total, but then I'm also sacrificing my board. So very difficult decisions, you know, where I think that's the crux of the decision is, do you sacrifice your board early or, you know, sacrifice your life points early? And uh, it's obviously different per game. Um, I think in general, if you're playing against someone who's red green and you think that they've got a hazardous blast, I, I would really caution against letting your life total get down to where your opponent's uh, creature's power is. I mean, that's just like pretty, pretty uh, uh, I think, inevitable fact that, that most uh, red green opponents are going to have a, a hazardous blast. And uh, you know, similarly, if you're playing against a black white deck, you really want to avoid, you, you want to make sure you're blocking aggressively so you avoid getting that third poison uh, counter to avoid corrupting. Fantastic. Yeah, I definitely agree with all of that. I think um, going the other way, uh, some of the times, like because the curves are so compacted and efficient in this format, sometimes your opponent, their their plan on turn two is often to, maybe or turn two or three is to attack. And then because you have that fear, you kind of have to block but they were planning to use their pump spell on that turn. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I've found that in general, I agree with both those, like those heuristics that you just don't want to take damage because of hazardous blasts. You don't want to take damage because of poison counters. And I think both of those are true. The times when it gets tricky is what does it look like if you wait exactly like one turn to make your board better, to make their removal awkward. Plus the fact that like maybe they didn't have a plan for the rest of their turn anyways, that the bad times that that work doesn't work out is if your opponent's like, okay, you didn't block. Now I'm still going to develop my board and, you know, play my three drop on turn three because you didn't block. It gets awkward. Like it goes the other way. Um, But I think also like with blazing crescendo, for example, like that one, it can be awkward when your creatures line up exactly. Whereas if you can just, get something slightly bigger into play and you're kind of smelling that out from your opponent and you can be like, well, they're attacking their 2-2 into my 2-2, but if I just wait to play a 3-3, then block with that 3-3 when my opponent attacks with their 2-2, it just makes their Blazing Crescendo awkward. Not to mention, if my opponent doesn't make the attack, uh, it kind of confirms they didn't want to make that trade or if they didn't make that attack again or if they attack again, it might even mean they have like a Titanic growth or some different type of trick. In a lot of cases, because uh, there there are opportunities to interact at instant speed, uh-huh. I think a lot of the time it does make sense to just wait until you've got mana open. You know, because like 
I, I think that's that's the other heuristic. If you're tapped out and your opponent has open mana, just don't block. I mean, that's just like, there's just so little, like, it's basically free for your opponent to just like play what they want to play if you're tapped out. So yeah, I, I think that's, that's basically, you know, if you can at, at the very least represent, like, even if you've got nothing at the very least, if you're representing some kind of instant speed interaction, that can be enough to, you know, at least make your opponent, th- you know, stop and think before they fire their trick off. I ju- have just found, it's kind of hard to put into words, but in this format, I found that if you're able to go a little bit wider with your board, things yes. get gummed up very quickly. So it mm. feels counterintuitive when you are behind to take damage because that feels very dangerous and bad. But when you talk about using your life total as a resource or you know maybe the 10 poison counters you can potentially get, if you feel like you can then stop losing life or stop taking poison, right? Um, that's the big cap, right? If you can turn the tide so that that stops happening, then it might be worth it to like wait a turn because let's say you have like I said you have, your opponent's attacking two two you get to play a two two if you don't block and then you then play a three three the next turn and then let's say like the trick you thought they had was complete devotion well if we look at this spot if you blocked your two two into their two two then complete devotion you know they're gonna get that one one for zero essentially and it's pretty bad for you but if you wait a turn and you double block with the 2-2 two, two, and a 3-3, three, three, your opponent's in a pretty awkward spot, right? Because mm-hmm. now, like, they just trade for your 2-2s, two, which is fine. Or they complete devotion to take down your 3-3. Three, three. But either way, like, you don't really care that much. But right. if you block with your 2-2 two, two, and then you play your 3-3, three, three, now if your opponent attacks again, it, you're now in that awkward spot again, right? Where if they represent, like, another trick... Suddenly you're like, okay, well, do I now block with my 3-3 three, three on your 2-2? Two, because two? that didn't go well last time. So if you just like had waited maybe like a turn and their their plan was like eating your creatures with pump spells, you can kind of ruin that plan by just like waiting a moment by just playing some more power and toughness to the board and finding, you know, thinking about like the range of tricks that they could potentially have and then finding ways to make double blocks that benefit you. Or like you said, if you have instant speed removal, you can easily break it up. Yeah, but no, I I think that that's actually a fantastic point. Is like like we keep saying is blocking is so important in this format. So if you're able to just chain together a few solid blockers, like that can be a real annoyance for an aggro deck. Like like I was just talking about the transplant theorist at the start of the podcast. You know, a, a, a two four can actually just be a wall for a, you know against a lot of decks. So um, I guess going the other way, if your opponent has a bunch of like high power, low toughness things, then like there, I'm more incentive is just like, you just want to block every time, right? Like mm-hmm. your opponent plays, they have like the barbatter fist. And while it's not great to trade with that because of like things they can do with it, like if I have a two, two and you know, they attack me, well, they can't blazing crescendo it. Cause that's not going to work out well for them. If they wanted to use some other, like if they want to use their Titanic growth, you know, and they're playing red green there then I just want to block. I don't want to take damage in case they have hazardous blast. Mm -hmm. So I just want to like reiterate that it's like super contextual. Totally. And you don't like a lot of times I'm just happy to take the trade, but like if, if it smells fishy and you have a way to like plan your next few turns and be like, ah, you know, actually I can actually stop this train from leaving the station and completely snowballing. Then that's when you want to kind of pump the brakes and then, change your plan for the next few turns god but while we're on it i just gotta say lattice blade mantis that card i just 
I feel like I'm always either only chumping it or just like never blocking it. <laughs> mm -hmm. Well, that's the problem with, I mean, that's why that card is so good is that it kind of breaks what we're talking about here. Right. Like, because of the vigilance. When it comes down, it's at, well, yeah, and it's at the stage of the game where you can probably deal it three damage, but you probably can't deal it four without losing two cards to it. At which point you're like, well, okay, I can block it with a couple two twos and lose my two twos, but I'll get two for one. Or I could take 10 damage and then try to find some way to deal with it. And it's like, you can't realistically just take 10 damage before it runs out of oil. And then, you know, it's even worse because, like you said, it has vigilance. So if you have a bunch of like two twos, you're, you're in huge trouble. So cards that are able to attack and block, you kind of have to do everything you can to get them out of play because you can't just like take damage and attack back. And so that also completely changes. And that's why those cards are so good in this format. Definitely. Right. That's why, you know, we keep talking about Chimney Rabble being so good. It's attacks and blocks. Yeah. Yeah. Sweet. Okay. I'm sure we could talk about, you know, combat for ages. That's that could be easily be an entire episode. There's so much going on with that. But um, thanks for bringing that up here. Now, we have hinted at this next one um, quite a bit and talked about some of the cards uh, throughout the episode, but secret gold cards, right? Um, cards that we think about uh, as mostly only going into maybe one or only one or maybe two archetypes so what are maybe some of these secret gold cards and more, i guess more importantly than knowing the secret gold cards how do we utilize the draft portion to make sure that we don't get too stuck in a lane too early or you know misevaluating where the cards go i guess is how i would phrase it yeah, definitely. Um, and I think this uh, concept, it's its hard to talk about it if you aren't thinking about specific like archetype game plans. And I think that is really where you can get a significant advantage in this format is just knowing what your deck is trying to do. You know, is your deck trying to get a bunch of artifacts? Okay, well, then you probably want Mandible Just SCR. Is your deck trying to do toxic stuff? Okay, well, then your deck probably doesn't want Mandible Just SCR. <laughs> and it's it's it really does create these kind of flowcharts of you know if if x then y and so you know i think you can definitely see that with you know with the artifact stuff like with uh, mandible just scr like I, I, veil of assimilation is probably the uh, a better one because that is just like so clearly like you would never have that in a deck without a bunch of artifacts and uh you know same with like i have i'm i have malkator like you're not playing that unless you've got 15 plus artifacts probably. I do think that it's it's relevant to look at some uh, cards like uh, Mandible Just SCR uh, as someone in my chat actually coined this phrase um, as a, a like a silver card sort of that can sort of go into like one of two archetypes or or uh, like has the option of like two archetypes. Like for Just, just SCR, like I... Uh, personally, like, yes, it's, it's definitely a like blue, white, mainly probably blue, white card, but I've had great success putting it in my red, white equipment decks. You know, that lifelink can just make your races very, very easy. Um, so I would actually say cards like Mandible Just SCR, I would, I would maybe call like a silver card and potentially you could use that as like a pivot point in your draft where you, um, you know, you've got your Just SCR and then your next pack, you've got let's say like an Unctus's Retrofitter, but then you also see like a Hexgold Halberd, you know, both great cards, but you're, you know, that's kind of where you're, uh, where that decision tree lies. Yeah, that, that's fantastic. I think um, this set, there's also kind of like secret wedges. Um, yes. It's like where they care about specific things, like 
you just mentioned Jeskai cares about artifacts. So when you have the artifact things within Jeskai, you could kind of go anywhere between blue, white, red, white, sometimes blue, red, um, if it's more of an artifact you build. And then, you know, you have teamer oil. So if it didn't work out originally, like you have oil gorge troll, which is best in blue, green, but you're taking that and you happen to get into like the red, green lane. It's pretty good in red, green too. It's just not like at its best. And, and these types of things where like, if you then try to squeeze that card into a place where it doesn't belong, just because you're drafting that color, that's where you get in trouble, right? Like you, you have the mandible just this year. You, you think you're blue white artifacts. You ha- randomly got like a fifth pick. I have Malkator and you're thinking, you're like, Oh, okay. I'm like, you know, I'm going down this blue white lane. And then you end up in green, white toxic. And you're like, well, mandible just, just this year, just fantastic. Right. But then you're playing it in green, white and the rest of your cards care about toxic. And then, you run into that problem we talked about before where like because they're not streamlined like maybe you still have to play it because you just need to two drop but it's not going to be very good there yeah exactly and uh you know along those same lines like you know you you would probably not be altogether unhappy about duelist of deep faith in an equipment deck you know it's got first strike you know it's not the end of the world if it's in your deck but also if it's if you've got like an artifact specific deck like really don't want anything that's not an artifact and and just to like kind of cap on that um i actually had a a great content creator ncaa um hang out uh in my chat while i was uh kind of talking about this stuff and he brought up a really interesting point that while there are you know obviously a lot of cards that are uh, specific to certain archetypes that this is actually a set where there are some just generally very good cards that uh, are maybe secret not gold cards. Like I think uh, one the, the main card in my mind here is um, Crawling Chorus, where yes, it's a toxic card, but on rate, it's just so good and just does so much that I'm usually pretty happy to actually play that in my artifact decks. And, you know, I'm fine playing in like a green-white, you know, just beat down deck that doesn't care about toxic. Like, uh, you know, along that same rate, uh, along those same lines, like, you know, Contagious Vorok, just that good. You know, it, it kind of touches some synergies, but yeah, I think that there are some cards that, while, you know, they're probably good in some archetypes, they really, you can just kind of put them wherever. Yeah, that's basically how I feel about Barb Batterfist. Can't ever pass one. I'm like, right, yeah. look, it's a 3-1, it's, one, so it's got good. a trade, and later when I need to put a plus one, minus one somewhere, I'm going to. Like, I, I play that card all the time in my red-green oil decks, and it's like... Oh, it's so great. There's no oil in this card. What am I even doing? <laughs> and then just every time I draw it, I'm like, oh, Chef's Kiss, so good. <laughs> it's just the best, yeah. yeah. so, like, caring about rate, that's a really good point. Okay, uh, last few points here. So, number six, you said the tap lands, like, all the spheres, um, Terramorphic Expanse. Uh, you kind of... You're, you're thinking you're happy to play maybe, what, a couple in sealed, but in draft, it's a lot scarier i'm like super off them it's funny because i think most people started out pretty high on them yeah i i was i I think i started out playing a few because i you know as a limited player like you just love that appeal of oh i can sack my land draw a card like it kind of reminded me of like the oh what were the lands that let you draw uh, they're, they're the Scrylands and strix and then yeah i think there, there was the one uh, in um, it was straight straight to new Capanna. yeah thank you yeah the yeah that that's exactly what they kind of reminded me of and and i remembered in streets like those were actually pretty nice like you know a lot of games would come down to like you know who who had it but i've got to say this format just feels so fast and the 
The emphasis on one drops means that if you're playing a tap land on one and, you know, your opponent's got, you know, untapped land and one drop into like two drop, like, yeah, you're, you're already kind of far behind. And um, I, I really think that just the sheer, uh, like most games of limited are won by the player that spends the most mana. And if you're handicapping yourself and giving yourself, you know, one less mana to work with, you're just going to be winning a lot less games. That's just a, a fact, I think. You know, even if it's, you know, a two-color deck and it's Terramorphic Expanse to, like, find your mana, I personally, I don't even run Terramorphic Expanse if I'm not, like, splashing seriously. Like, in two-color streamlined decks, it's pretty much all basics for me. Like, I'm, I'm not going to run a Sphere unless it's, like, a super slow deck. And, like, I'll run it, I think... My edge case is I'll run a sphere in a black blue deck where, you know, my whole deck is just trying to dig for these like pr- proliferate burn spells. Pretty much everything else, like I just want on top lands. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I think if you have the optimized curves and you have the one drops available, all that kind of stuff, then you totally don't want these like maybe one maximum, but in general, like trending towards zero. For me, like I have played recently, like more best of three. Um, before this alchemy stuff came out and so in best of three i just found the drafts were pretty competitive in that like i wasn't seeing all the crazy like efficient cards that i would want to play like on two mana Hmm. and i feel like the draft tables were like just fighting over that because i guess these folks were probably just more in the know and so it was interesting because i suddenly started playing more spheres because the cheap cards like the really good cheap cards are really contested so i i had a lot of more of those situations where i was describing where like i only maybe had like four or five plays like that cost two or less not because i wasn't trying to prioritize them but i mostly didn't see them whereas it, that has not been my experience in best of one drafting where like i'm wheeling bar batter fist and stuff and i'm like this just probably shouldn't be happening but hey i'm not mm-hmm. gonna complain and so i feel like it does kind of depend on the context of like the draft formats you're seeing in terms of like the metagame because the less you're able to have those curve outs then suddenly like you know obviously the better those spheres get and then the only thing i would say is if you can like if you don't get the critical density of one drops and you're able to play like a sphere in your mana base if if you do have that as your one drop and then you do enact those games where you like trade 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 i i have found that like whoever does happen to have like the sphere is pretty advantaged in those games because they get that extra draw. But in general, I think you're exactly right. Where like most of the time you probably don't really want them when you have a good deck, like they're really quite bad. So it's interesting. Like the better your deck is, the less you want them, the worse your deck is, the more you want them. Yeah. Yeah. And, and uh, I think that's actually a great point about best of three. I could definitely see them being pretty solid there, you know, just for, you know, the lack of having a hand smoother, you know, you're just, you're just going to end up in games where they go that long. And I think my main point is that I th- the main reason I really don't like them in best of one is I hardly ever see games go that long. Mm-hmm. It's like normally like if I'm on five mana, I'm like tapping out for a five drop or like I'm trying to like drop a two drop and kill your thing or whatever, like sacking, you know, sacking one of my lands and like paying two. It's just it's so hard to find time and like room in the mana curve for that. Like I find most games are generally kind of like wrapping up by that by the time that I would be cashing in that that card so you know definitely for like you know probably uh yeah i don't want to be too extreme because i i think that there is a place for them in uh slower archetypes but yeah for the most part 
I think people are overplaying them. Yeah, that's probably true. I probably play too many as well. And, and that's probably like, I, I'd say my average deck has like one, but that's sometimes maybe I shouldn't even play them. Um, but I've caught myself being like, oh, I, I used to play two of them. And now I'm like, yeah, let's maybe put, let's maybe get one of those out of the deck right now. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. And then uh, just the last couple points here, you just have a big, bolded number seven hazardous blast. <laughs> so I, I guess you have strong feelings about this card. <laughs> um, I, I just, I think it would be remiss not to talk about it. It really, it's a little like the boogeyman of the format where so many games come down to who has it, right? Um, especially in high mythic where, you know, it's just two red green, it's just a red green or red white mirror and, you know, just two, two players with axiom engravers trying to rummage rummage faster for their hazardous blast. So I, I think it is very format defining. Um, I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing. Like I, I do think that it would probably be better if the card were rarity bumped to uncommon uh, and, and maybe we would see it a little less often um but that being said i think that it it does create some very interesting play patterns um where it's it reminds me a lot of heroic charge actually from dominary united which uh was two white white um for creatures you control get plus two plus one until end of turn and then you can kick it for one in a red and give uh those creatures trample and so it, it honestly plays out very similar to that where, <laughs> you know, in that format where you went wide enough and you played Heroic Charge, it was like, okay, well, I'm just dead. Like, there's literally no way I can block effectively. I'm just, all this damage spills through to me. It's basically that, uh, but in red, where it's just, here's four mana and all my damage is going to your face. So <laughs> I, I think uh, it's, it's, it's a funny card because uh, it does literally nothing it does like next to nothing if you're behind so it's that's the thing it's not broken it's not overpowered it's just uh it's a very it's it can be a very powerful game plan yeah i I really have nothing to add i think you really summed up nicely and if you want an entire debate about it you go listen to mystical disputes uh they have a whole art a whole episode on it so yeah hazard blast is a great one and then lastly number eight you're saying here you know, everything is viable as long as the table is not overvaluing, you know, cards that should not be overvalued. So things like, you know, you can actually get in a blue-black deck when those color pairs aren't overdrafted, those colors aren't overdrafted. But like at most tables, you know, Naya is going to be the place to be, but every once in a while people do know that. And so those colors will be appropriately contested and maybe you can scoop up some good blue and black strategies uh, when those times allow which i think is true yeah absolutely and and i yeah just just to cap that i think you know people and content creators have, have taken pretty strong stance that you know naya colors are the best and and there's not a ton of dispute about that you know the cards are very flexible and powerful uh but you know that being said i think when blue black comes together it is so sweet and so much fun so <laughs> i just i gotta recommend you know if if you've uh if you find yourself in that seat definitely draft it it's it's such a blast well fantastic pasta thank you so much for you know really laying on the knowledge today i think there's just a million takeaways from this particular episode so you've been a fantastic guest um we did kind of already talk about where folks can find you earlier but hey i'm going to give you that opportunity again here so that it's fresh in everyone's mind and then i'll also link all these uh descriptions in the show notes as well 
Um, but where are the best places for folks to find you and your work? Yeah, thank you so much. Um, I am mainly on uh, twitch.tv. At, uh, you can just find me at uh, The Pasta Pirate. That's my channel. And uh, on Twitter as well, yeah, at uh, also The Pasta Pirate. So, yeah. Uh, oh, and YouTube. I just recently made a YouTube. It's, it's just kind of like a place where I dump all my Twitch clips. But, um, yeah, so YouTube as well. Uh, again, Neil, I just like cannot thank you enough for having me on. This has just been the opportunity of a lifetime for me. I'm such a huge fan and uh, <laughs> seriously, just um, such a such a pleasure to get to, to come on here and, and chat with you today. Well, absolutely. Like I said, um, you have been a fantastic guest. I, you know, I, I definitely level up in a few areas too. Like I think, you know, you really brought some excellent points here today. So oh, I really appreciate gosh. you kind of, uh, you know, expanding on a lot of these points. I'm going to go hop into some more alchemy drafts and see if I can uh, get some busted cars and apply it to some of this. And uh, I do want to shout out uh, Adept here and Above patron Marius. Thanks so much for your support. And for everyone else, thanks for listening and see you next time on the 40 Card College podcast.